Genesis 19, verses 1 to 22. 1 to 22, the destruction of Sodom. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here, a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? And he said to them, and he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that town was called Zoar. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this holy word of God you've given us. We thank you for the examples that are presented here and the clear distinctions you make between your people and those who are the people of Satan. 
We thank you, Lord, that the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. And we ask you, Lord, to teach us more from this passage what it means to practice righteousness and avoid wickedness. Grant us your spirit and grant us to think the way you think and to have wisdom that comes from above. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. Now, in verse 1, we have two angels who came to Sodom. They meet Lot. In verse 1, it says two angels. When we read other places here in this chapter, they are called men. For example, in verse 12, then the men said to Lot, or again at verse 16, but he hesitated, so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters. They are angels, but they are also men because they come in human form. These are two angels, it mentions them by name or, or by number, two of them. In chapter 18, verse 22, 18:22, it says, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. That means that in chapter 18, where there were three men, one was the Lord in human form, and the other two were angels in human form. And two of them went ahead into chapter 19 to meet up with Lot here. And they are at that, that point in 19.1 called angels. And in chapter 18 at the end, the Lord is still before Abraham. So this incident here in 19, that, that part that we read is taking place between Lot and the two angels in human form as, as men. And they con are confronted by the men of Sodom. Verse 1. When they come to Sodom, in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Lot is sitting there at the gate of Sodom. It doesn't tell us why he's sitting there. Some think he's sitting there because he has wrong intentions. That he is mixing and mingling with the people of Sodom. But I don't think that we should take that view of, Sod of Lot here being in Sodom or near Sodom. Because the passage is clearly making a distinction between the righteousness of Lot contrasted with the wickedness of the Sodomites. So Lot is a righteous man, and characteristically, he behaves in righteous ways. In fact, 2 Peter 2, 6-8, calls him righteous Lot three times. He was a righteous man, and that's why he's being spared here. Remember, at the end of the previous chapter, God promised to Abraham he would not destroy it if he could find ten righteous. He could not find ten, so he allows Lot to escape. And why does he allow Lot to escape? Because Abraham's petition before the Lord was, don't destroy the righteous people within the city with the wicked people. Yes, God, destroy the wicked according to your just uh, recompense, Punish them in due time, and now it's time. So go ahead and do that, but please spare the righteous. So Lot is righteous according to the context of chapters 18 and 19 and confirmed by 2 Peter 2, verses 6 to 8. So when he's sitting here in the gate, we have to, if unless the text clearly tells us, I think we should assume he's sitting there for a noble reason, a good reason. And what would his good or noble reason be? Well, as he does in this passage, he practices hospitality. He's practicing hospitality. He's looking for someone to help 
somebody who's passing by his city. And in those days, there were not as many hotels or inns for people to lodge overnight. So the people of the city or the people of the town, the people of the village would open up their own houses for the purpose of helping strangers as they are passing by who need lodging. And that's what Lot's doing here. He's looking for those to do so. And when he uh, is approached by them in verse 1, Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed with his face to the ground. Now this, I believe, he, it may be at least for one reason, if not for two or three reasons. The, the minimal reason is he sees strangers and the normal greeting is to show them honor and respect by bowing down in their presence. And then you begin discussing whatever the matter is with them. First you greet them in this way, bow down, and then you uh, present your subject matter or they present their subject matter and you begin your dialogue. So that would be minimally the reason. The other reason may be if he knew they were angels, he was showing them respect in that way. Just like Abraham did in chapter 18, Abraham th had three men appear to him. One of them was the Lord. And if Abraham indeed knew who was approaching him, he would have bowed in order to show respect to the angels and to the Lord himself. Verse 2, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. Now from this, he is giving them the needed hospitality. That is, he's helping them to have food. He's helping them to have lodging. He's helping them to be refreshed. He says, wash your feet. Why? Because they would wear sandals on dirty, dusty roads and your feet would need to be refreshed. You need to put up your feet and so forth. Then he says, you may rise early and go your way. So he is proposing hospitality to them. They said, however, verse 2, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. In the public square, in the open place, that's the, where they want to spend the night. They say that is sufficient and good enough for us. It may be that they are testing by humility. A true uh, humble person will not impose himself, but even a humble person will take the goodness or the kindness of someone else if that person really wants to do it, right? So on the one hand, humility says, no, no, you don't have to go out of your way for me. But on the other hand, if the person is not going out of his way and the, the one who's making the offer is insistent and urging, then it becomes a matter of, okay, I should be humble enough to take it from the person who is being generous to me. So it's a two-way street. And this is what normally happens in this two-way street. On the one hand, someone wants to be generous. On the other hand, the other wants to be humble. But if the humble person persists and says, no, 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 then he is, in a sense, becoming proud because he doesn't want to receive generosity from someone else. Or um, if the generous person is insisting to such an extent that he forces himself, then he also is crossing the line. So eventually someone needs to give up or someone needs to concede something and they do so in verse 3. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. They urged him strongly. Well, this one will remind us 
of a similar incident that happened in the book of Acts. Acts chapter uh, 16 with Lydia and Paul and Luke. With Lydia, Paul, and Luke. There, she hears the gospel, she believes, she's baptized, and then she says to Paul and Luke, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And it says, when she urged them, when she urged them, just like it says here, that Lot urged the angels, when she urged Paul and Luke, Paul and Luke said, fine, that's good. You want to be generous like this, we'll be happy to stay with you overnight. So they stayed in her house and received her hospitality. The same, I think, is happening here by verse 3. And yet he urged them, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. Now it's evening time, and it's time to eat. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Notice it says, baked unleavened bread. Normally leavened bread, but unleavened bread is prepared when you want to make it quickly and feed your guests quickly so that they can eat quickly and retire quickly. I think that's the likely reason here of feeding the uh, guests the unleavened bread so that they could go to sleep and move on with their business, get their necessary rest. He's not going to keep them up all night. He's not going to keep them up all night. He wants them to rest and then prepare early the next morning. As he says in verse 2, may rise early and go on your way. So, they ate. Verse 4. Before they lay down, actually before we read verse 4 and this next uh, paragraph, notice up here we've got some references. Hebrews 13, 2. Let us show hospitality to strangers, for some have entertained angels without knowing it. Some have entertained angels without knowing it. That may be an allusion to Abraham and Lot, initially not knowing who was approaching them. After they engaged those individuals, they knew, but initially they didn't know it, but they were already willing from a distance to receive these uh, new faces into their home to practice hospitality. Now, he exhorts all of us as Christians to do this. Hebrews 13, 2. Hebrew, uh, Romans 12, 13 also says, characteristic of believers is practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. Acts 16, 16, 15, we've mentioned Lydia already. She did that as a fruit or evidence of her conversion because she, she says to them, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, you see me to be a true believer. I, I believe what you uh, were preaching. I believe the gospel. I've been baptized. If you've seen my behavior since then, what, why don't you also come into my house because I want to also do so. 1 Peter 4, 9 also teaches us to be hospitable to one another without complaint. Yeah. Without complaint. So don't gripe and grumble about it. And Matthew 25, 31 to 46, we remember the Lord said that we should be those who visit those in prison as though in prison with them and help those who do not have food and clothing, help them in that way. And so in, in that sense, we are practicing hospitality because in prison, prison in those days and in many countries today, not like the United States, but in many countries, the prisoners don't get their own food or if they do get their own food from the prison system, it's not good food. So who gives them good food to eat? 
but those who know them. And if they are thrown into prison as uh, being persecuted for the name of Christ, then the Christians should bring the food to the prison in order to give their brothers in Christ some food. So Matthew 25, Jesus teaches us to do that. And then the pastor himself, the pastor or elder himself, 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8, he should be hospitable. He should be hospitable himself. So what we see here is a characteristic of all Christians that they should practice it. Whether they are in the ministry or not, they should practice this kind of hospitality. Lot did so, an evidence of his righteousness. Verse 4, verse 4, before they, they lay down, before the angels and Lot, they went to bed, before the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Yeah. Here, it's telling us that they all came there, they all came there, but the men especially, young and old, young and old. We can understand some youthful passions here, but it's also old, old men here. And in a sense, old men should know better and they should have less of these evil passions to do wrong and sin like this, but they're there also. And also the young. The young should have some kind of, of shame or they should have some kind of, of timidity. Aren't young people often less... Um, less courageous, less bold than old people in some circumstances. For example, um, Gideon's son. Gideon's son was told to execute the Midianite rulers and he was, it says he, he was timid for he was young and he was afraid to do it so Gideon did it himself. In some ways, young people are more timid than those who understand the circumstances and have had years of training to overcome their timidity, their fear. But in this case, we have young and old, all the people from every quarter, all the men coming. This shows that they were all corrupt. All of them were corrupt. All of them were sinful. Remember, in 1832, 1832, Abraham said, 1832, then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. So there aren't ten. They're all corrupt. Right. Not ten. All are corrupt in their moral uh, perversity. Verse 5. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. That we may have relations with them. Where are they? Now, when they say that they want relations, this is a euphemism, an English euphemism for we want to have sex with them. We want to sodomize them. We want to put, yes, I, I, we want to do wrong things with our sexual organ with these other men. That's what they're wanting to do. This expression is even a Hebrew euphemism. Because in Hebrew, it says that we may know them. We may know them. We come across this expression in Genesis 4.1. And the man knew his wife. Adam knew his wife. In 4.17, Cain knew his wife. And in 4.25, Adam again knew his wife Eve. 
And so in these cases already in the book of Genesis, we know that to know someone, the Hebrew idiom, and the King James Version translates that literally and says to know them, that idiom it has to do with sexual intercourse with someone else. But in this case, it is forbidden, prohibited, wicked sexual intercourse because it's going to be with men with men. Men with men, that's what they are proposing. Verse 6, But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Notice, Lot knows he is there as the host to protect his guests. He's taking that upon himself. Another evidence of righteousness. He's got guests who need to be protected, and he knows the character, the wicked character of the Sodomites, so he goes out to them and shuts the door behind him, hoping to be a barrier and, and hoping to persuade the men to turn away, to walk away. That's what he's desiring. So verse 7, and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. He says, please. So he's speaking the truth in love. But he does say it. He says, please. And he's about to tell them the truth, but he says it in love. He's appealing to them. He's trying to be as polite as he can according to the circumstance to deal with them. So he says, please. Remember, speaking the truth in love is found in uh, Ephesians 4.15, that we're supposed to do so. Further, he says, my brothers, my brothers. When he says my brothers, he does not mean my brothers in Christ, my spiritual brothers, my brothers in the gospel. He doesn't mean brothers in that way. He means it in terms of my neighbors, you, my neighbors. You are the same ones who dwell here with me. In that sense, he calls them brothers. For example, we have something similar to that um, in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, 13. 1 Kings 19, 13. In this passage, the king of Tyre a foreign city, but a neighboring city or neighboring country, a neighboring nation, the king of that neighboring nation says this to Solomon. He says this to Solomon. 1 Kings nine thirteen, And he said, What are these cities which you have given me, my brother? The foreign king calls Solomon my brother. And why? Because they are neighbors. Neighbors nationally. Neighbors in a national sense. And I think that's what is the context of Lot. And actually, even in English, we have this idiom too, don't we? Um, sometimes when we are talking about our own country or our own city, we'll call somebody else with whom we want to have a friendly connection or a friendly conversation, we'll, we'll call that person a brother. We don't mean it in a spiritual, Christological sense, not in Christ but we mean it in terms of we live in the same town, we live in the same village, we live in the same neighborhood, we live in the same country, so we call each other brothers in that way. Sometimes people do that publicly in reference to other people. That's the way Lot means it here. Lot is not compromising. My point is Lot is not compromising here. He's merely appealing to them and referring to them but in these congenial, friendly ways. 
And how do we know he's not compromising? Because of what he says in the next phrase. Do not act wickedly. He calls their behavior wicked. Their intentions wicked. He doesn't say a mistake. He doesn't say personal preference. He doesn't say you were naturally born that way. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't say anything like that. He, just, he calls it wickedness. He knows what they're doing and what they want to do is wicked. And that shows also from the subsequent passage. He knows it is evil. It's wrong in the sight of God. It's a crime against God and one another to practice sodomy. He knows that. He calls it wicked. Which reminds us that Ephesians 4, 15 says, speaking the truth in love. We have to speak the truth also, right? Yes. We have to speak the truth. 1 Corinthians 13 says we have to rejoice with the truth. And what does 1 Corinthians 13 teach us? To love. But love, to re and love is not exclusive of speaking the truth. We have to rejoice with the truth and love the people who hear the truth. Lot's doing this here. Calling their sin, sin. He's not calling it a personal preference. He's not calling it uh, a, a natural disorder or the way you were born or an orientation, natural orientation or God-given uh, God orientation. He's not calling it by any kind of wrong way to minimize what evil is in their behavior. He calls it wicked. Verse 8. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, verse 8, verse 8, um, it says, who have not had relations with men. Lot himself says that they have not known a man or had relations with the man because they're not married yet. They are engaged. They are engaged according to verse 14, spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. New American Standard Bible, who were to marry his daughters. So they are engaged to be married, not married yet. That's why he says in eight, they have not had relations with men. I say this just in case your Bible translation translates verse 14 differently than the New American Standard Bible, or if your footnote suggests otherwise in verse 14. I believe they were virgins. They had not married uh, yet, yet they were engaged to be married. One, that's the one clarification. The second one is the proposal of verse 8. The proposal of verse 8 is according to a very common reading of the passage, a very scandalous proposal. Yeah. A very scandalous and atrocious proposal. How is it that Lot could offer his daughters to the Sodomites instead of the two men, the two angels, lodging with him? How in the world could anyone think of doing such a thing? That's normally the reaction we have. Now, on the one hand, we should have uh, repulsion at the thought of what he just proposed. We should have repulsion. We should be repelled by it. 
It should not be something that is a, a good thing to do or a good thing to propose. On the other hand, look at the alternative. The alternative was for the men of Sodom to sodomize or practice homosexual, uh, homosexuality against these two men who are guests of Lot and who are angels. In the mind of Lot, all evil is not the same evil. He understands that there are degrees of sin or degrees of evil. In our minds, either because of our upbringing or because of our culture, or even a misreading of the Bible, we might think that every sin is of equal gravity. Every evil is the same evil. Every evil is as bad as another evil. When actually, the Bible does not teach that. It teaches that there are greater and lesser evils, that there are greater and lesser sins. So in Lot's mind, for someone, uh, for a man to rape a woman, it is an evil, but it's a lesser evil than a man raping another man, and let alone a man raping an animal, which also happens, right? There are men and women who have sex with animals. They do that. So there are degrees of evil. And so what's happening in Lot's mind, I think, is that he's looking at the lesser evil, which is to give his daughters and hopefully satisfy the men and they will go away and not practice sodomy against these two angelic men who are in his home. So in his mind, he's making this contrast. Now, we might say, well, he could have thought of any number of other options. That's true. He could have thought of any number of other options. But this is what it says that he had in his mind. Then put yourself in his same situation. When you have some kind of matter like this that's coming upon you, suddenly, what's going to race through your mind? Are you going to think about 12 or 15 or 36 different options before you act? No, you're probably going to have in your mind one or two immediately when the emergency takes place. And it'll be hard for you to decide which is it that you're going to do. That's so we should put ourselves in Lot's position to understand he's not doing this as a malicious man, as a wicked man, as an unrighteous man, as a lost man. He's not doing it in that situation. He's doing it with a dilemma set before him. He wants to do right, and he's seeing the two evils presented before him, and he's choosing the lesser evil, and that's why he's saying this. Is that clear? Are we uh, on this? Uh, do we understand what's being said? We're, we're not saying that it's good to offer your daughters to wicked men. Right. That's not the point. But on the other hand, understand the context of this, and also understand that the passage itself, or nowhere else in Scripture, does it categorically call Lot an evil man for doing this, or an unbeliever for doing this, or calls him to repent for doing this. The Scriptures don't do this in this passage or, or elsewhere. Before we move on, let's establish that the sins that they are proposing are indeed 
sins, or the sodomy that they are proposing is indeed a sin. We already know from Genesis 13, 13, 13, 13, that the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. 13, 13, wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. 18, 20, 18, 20, and the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly great. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So already they are identified as being exceedingly wicked. And it also says that they have an outcry. It's like there is such a commotion, such turmoil there, sinful turmoil there, that it is shouting up, and clamoring for God's attention, for God to act as the righteous judge of heaven, which outcry is also mentioned in 1913. Their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. Furthermore, we read from Leviticus 18.22 and 20 verse 13, and Deuteronomy 23, 17 and 18, that for a male to have sexual relations with another male is an abomination and is perversion. It should not exist. From 1 Kings 14, 24, 15, 12, and 22, 46, it also shows that the kings of Judah also took pains, took the effort in order to get rid of people like that, to remove them from society, to get rid of them out of the land. And in 1 Kings twenty-two forty-six, the New American Standard Bible says, And the remnant of the Sodomites who remained in the days of his father Asa, he expelled from the land. That is, Jehoshaphat, the righteous king of Judah, expelled the Sodomites, the remaining Sodomites who were there in the previous generation of his father. And all of this, this would have taken place about 850 B.C., about 850 or 840 B.C. in the time of King Jehoshaphat. That's when he did this. So they took pains to make sure that none of their people, at least a few of the kings, took pains to make sure that none of their people were practicing this sin. Now, a word of clarification, too. The New American Standard Bible does say sodomite in 1 Kings twenty-two forty-six. Why does it call these homosexuals sodomites? Because the primary, prime, supreme example in the Bible of an illustration of this sin comes from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities from Sodom and Gomorrah, or shorthand, Sodom, and that's why they are known as Sodomites. When, when men behave this way, with this sexual sin, they are called Sodomites. The Bible does use other words for them, such as homosexual, which we will see, but Sodomite is, according to the New American Standard Bible, and even according to um, legal history, in the United States and many other countries, this crime of one person against another or one man against another is known as sodomy. 
It's known as sodomy or even buggery. It's called sodomy and buggery in legal terms. Also homosexuality. So this is uh, the, the terminology that the Bible uses. The Bible, in other words, does not say gay. It does not call this sinful behavior gay. Gay has been a hijacked word. The, the homosexuals or sodomites of our day have taken this good word gay, which means happy, and they have hijacked it and used it to describe their sinful behavior, and they are self-identifying themselves as being happy when they are the most miserable people in the world. They are very miserable people. They're always looking for attention. They're always looking for you to justify their wicked behavior. And they are on drugs. They have depression. They have a shorter lifespan because of the turmoil that they have inside and also because of the physical uh, activities with which they engage. They live to be less years than we do who live a normal life. So they're not gay. And we shouldn't use that word. We should not use that to describe their behavior. And even today, these, uh, these initials, LGBTQ, etc., et they, they use these words when really it's perversion, it's abomination, it's wicked, right. it's sodomy, it's whatever other words. But use a word that properly describes their sin. Don't use some other word that sugarcoats the sin. He did not do so. The Bible does not do so. Now, let's turn. I want to take a little bit of time to go to the passages of the New Testament that I've listed here. The first one is Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. And the reason being, we need to see New Testament evidence against this sin in order to combat it today because the culture and even the Christian culture of our day easily dismisses the Old Testament easily dismisses evidence from the Old Testament. But if we have evidence from the New Testament, that is not easily dismissible. Romans 1.26. 1.26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 26. God gives these people over to degrading passions. That's not a positive term. Degrading passions. Why? Their women exchange a natural function for that which is unnatural. That is, women are with women instead of women being with men in marriage. 27, and in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts. So men with men. Notice in this passage, we don't have a word like homosexual or sodomy. We don't have a word here, but we do have the people involved and their sinful behavior described. And what God thinks of their sinful behavior. I say this because whatever word we use, let's get to the point. Let's get to the foundation of the matter. And that is, 
Is the behavior acceptable to God or not? That's the real issue. Is the behavior acceptable? And according to Romans 1, 26 and 27, it's not acceptable. Taking uh, or setting aside the use of terms, the behavior itself is unacceptable in the sight of God. It is indecent and they receive the due penalty of their error. God punishes them with their due recompense. Next passage, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Is this a matter of salvation or not? Is this a matter of salvation or not? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 will answer that. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. He says, do you not know? Why do I have to write this to you? Why do I have to tell you again? Do you not know? You should already know that this is the case. Unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no salvation, no eternal life, no forgiveness of sins for unrighteous people who practice these sins. And don't be deceived, either by yourself or by somebody else who tells you that you can be a Christian homosexual or a Christian fornicator, a Christian idolater, a Christian adulterer, a Christian thief, a Christian drunkard. Who has heard of such absurd things? But people say that. They say you can be a drunken Christian and go to heaven. You can be a thieving Christian and go to heaven. You can be a homosexual Christian and go to heaven. You can be an adulterous Christian and go to heaven and so forth. Any number of sins, they say, you can practice those sins and still be saved go to heaven. But he says clearly twice in 9 and 10, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no kingdom for them unless they repent and believe, which verse 11 says. That's the other point about this passage, that repentance and faith in Christ are possible. Because he says in 11, some were you, uh, such were some of you. Some of you were like this, but you're not that way anymore right. because you were washed, sanctified, and justified in Christ and the Spirit. Next is 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, 8. 1 Timothy 1, 8. Now, is this a gospel issue? That's the phrase used today. Gospel issue. This or that is a gospel issue. This or that is not a gospel issue. That phrase is used. Well, if we're going to use that phrase, is this a gospel issue? Does this sin relate to the gospel or not? 1 Timothy 1 answers that. 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. 1, 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Why is the law there and what is necessary 
for us to understand about the law and the gospel, that all of these wicked behaviors are, verse 10, contrary to sound teaching. Contrary, and whatever else, contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel that Paul preached, and the apostles in Christ and the prophets, they all preached. This one gospel is the sound teaching, and this sound teaching teaches us to reject all of these sins and practice righteousness. Whatever the opposite is of those sins, according to the definitions given in the Bible. Therefore, even though today we do have many, many organizations that say that they are homosexual organizations, and even some that they are Christian homosexuals or homosexual Christians or queer Christians, like this. They use these words to describe themselves and these groups or organizations. That is an impossibility, according to the gospel. You cannot hold to the gospel and say you are a homosexual Christian or a Christian homosexual. That's impossible. You can't say that you are a Christian murderer, can you? Can we have groups and organizations, 501c3 organizations, Christian murderers of America? No. Can we have Christian kidnappers of America? An organization, a legal defense fund for Christian kidnappers of America? No. Christian liars, Christian perjurers, that is lying in court under oath, Christian perjurers of America, should we have a legal defense fund for them? Should we have a a political activist uh, organization for that? Should we have lobbyists in Washington, D.C. for Christians who want to lie and perjure and kidnap and murder people and even kill their fathers and mothers? No, it's all absurd. So we cannot also have homosexual Christians and homosexual Christian organizations and lobbyists and, and fundraising and all that stuff. None of that should be happening. Not at all. It's contrary to Christianity. And the last two places are in 2 Peter and Jude. 2 Peter and Jude. We need to confirm by our reading of 2 Peter what Peter says of Lot in contrast to the men of Sodom. 2 Peter 2.6 And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Verse 6, God is the one condemning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, reducing them to ashes. He left them there as an example for us, not to live ungodly. Not to live ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, notice righteous Lot, verse 7, verse 8, righteous man, verse 8, righteous soul, and in contrast, the men of Sodom are called unrighteous. Unrighteous, and in verse 7, unprincipled. Unrighteous and unprincipled. So, God spared Lot, but he condemned Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. Jude 7. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. They are recorded in Scripture as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The fire and brimstone God brought on them was only a physical example, a token and an illustration, a type of eternal punishment in the lake of fire, in hell forever and ever. That's why he did it that way. And he left it in scripture, and it becomes a constant, perennial example in scripture from Genesis to Jude and Revelation as an example of how God overthrows wicked people. Why? Because they indulge in gross immorality. Notice that word gross. Remember I said there are degrees of sin and degrees of evil? Here he calls going after strange flesh. Strange means forbidden flesh. Right. If one man goes after another or one woman after another, that's strange flesh, biblically defined. And this is gross immorality. Therefore, they are punished. By the way, on degrees of evil, we have Jesus saying, He who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. He who delivered me up to you has the greater sin in, in John 19, 11. In John 19, 11. And we also know that when the evil spirits are indwelling a man, and then they are cast out, sometimes those evil spirits... They return to the man where they used to inhabit. And it says in Matthew 12, 1245, Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is, there might be an evil spirit possessing a man. He, it might be a wicked one. But if it is exercised or thrown out of that man, it might go and find seven others more wicked than itself, re-inhabit the man, and make the condition, the sinful condition, the bondage of that man worse than it was at first. So greater wickedness right there too. So in the same way is this sin. Okay, now back to chapter 19. 19 and verse 9. 19, 9. The reaction of the Sodomites. But they said, 19.9, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. They want him to get out of the way. They don't say please. <laughs> right? He said please. He, they didn't say please. Verse 9, Stand aside. Then they say, He came as an alien. Okay. So if you are a foreigner, then you have no moral high ground. You have no moral standard to judge us. That's what they're saying. If you are a foreigner, if you are an alien, you have no platform to tell anything to us. As though human nature isn't the same from one nation to another. Right. Isn't it the same? Nope. It is the same. There are people who steal in our country and there are people who steal in other countries. There are people who commit adultery in our country and they commit adultery in other countries. They murder in our country and they murder in other countries. They worship idols in our country and they worship idols in other countries. So that has nothing to do with it. Being a foreigner or an alien has nothing to do with it. Further, already he is acting like a judge. 
Well, listen, if you don't listen to the prophet or the righteous man like Lot, who's telling you the difference between righteous and wickedness, who is making the judgment on your behalf for your benefit, if you don't listen to him and you say, who are you to judge me? Who are you to act like a judge to me? Well, if you don't listen to the prophet or the righteous man telling you, who are you going to have to face? The judge of heaven, which they are about to face him right here. They're about to face the judge of heaven. They wouldn't listen to the loving judge, Lot. Now they're going to have to listen to the (laughs) heavenly judge and pay the penalty for their sins. Then they press hard against him to break the door. This is how desperate they are with their degrading passions. They have no control that they press hard against him and come to break down the door because they know the men are on the inside with the lock. They know that it's going to be hard, but they're in great numbers and they're going to use their strength and the passions that they have, evil passions, to do so. But before that actually happens, verse 10, but the men, that is the men on the inside, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door because of the compassion of the Lord. Verse 11, and they, the the, the angels, struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. This miracle occurs in order to protect the righteous, to punish the wicked and protect the righteous. A miracle, sudden blindness. Which miracle? We have two more examples, at least in Scripture. 2 Kings 6.18, 2 Kings 6.18, when Elisha struck the enemies, the foreign enemies whose armies were there, struck them with blindness so that they could not attack and invade the people of Israel. 2 Kings 6.18. And then in Acts 13, Acts 13 and verse 11, 13, 11, Paul the Apostle strikes Elymas the magician with blindness because of how he was trying to subvert the gospel. Subversion of the gospel and attacking the people of God, God has, in these instances, struck them with blindness. Someone might say, well, that's unkind, that's unloving. Well, God did it. He did it against wicked people. And also as a sign, they had internal spiritual blindness and it's manifested on the outside by this physical blindness. Verse 12. When the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here, a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. They, the two angels, urged Lot to bring out all the ones that he loves, all his possessions, all of his people, bring them out of the city. Why? Because they are about to destroy it. Great is the outcry. And notice, the outcry is before the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. As it said in 1820-21, the outcry came up to the Lord. And also, the Lord has sent us to destroy it. We'll see that this is emphasized also later, 1924. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. 25, he overthrew those cities. Now, why is that important? It's important because this 
miracle or the fire and brimstone, fire and sulfur that came upon them was not an accident of nature. It was not Mother Nature. It was not the gods of the pagan pantheon of many, many gods. It was not anything like that. It did not happen through demonic activity. It did not happen by the ingenuity of man, as though man has the ability to do any of these things, to change the course of nature. We do not have the ability to change the course of nature like that. So it did not happen in any of those ways. The Bible is making it clear that this punishment came from God himself, from the Lord of heaven, the judge of heaven himself. So 14, And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. He appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So Lot, in his love and compassion towards his sons-in-law, tells them to leave. But they don't believe him. They don't believe Lot. They think Lot is joking. You're joking. You're kidding me. In other words, that's their reaction. Observe how, throughout Scripture, when people do not believe the word of the Lord, how they make excuses. Let's look at a few passages of excuse-making for not believing the word of the Lord. Excuse-making, which is the common lot of humanity, right? We make excuses whenever we don't want to believe the word of God delivered by the messenger of God, just as they didn't believe Lot. Our first example is Jeremiah 43. Jeremiah 43. Jeremiah 43. Now, the people in this chapter had already approached Jeremiah and told him, assured him in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, they assured him, whatever you tell us from the Lord, we're going to listen to you. We're going to listen to anything you say to us, whether it's good or bad, whether we like it or not, pleasant, unpleasant, we're going to listen to you. We know you're a man of God. You're the holy prophet of God. You have spoken the word of God all these years. We're going to listen to you. That's the gist of chapter 42. And in response to that, Jeremiah said, warn them not to, re not to resort to Egypt. Don't flee to Egypt when the Babylonians attack Judah. Don't do that. Don't go to Egypt. That's what Jeremiah said to them, because he knew their real intentions. On the outside, their words were, we're going to listen to anything you say. But on the inside, they wanted Jeremiah to endorse their desire to go to Egypt. So how... Do they respond when Jeremiah tells them the word of the Lord? 43, verse 1. Jeremiah 43, 1. But it came about, as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had sent, had finished telling all the people all the words of the Lord their God, that is, all these words, the words of the previous chapter, that Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, the same men, the same people who consulted him. You are telling a lie. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you are not to enter uh, Egypt to reside there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to give us over into the hand of the Chaldeans so that they may put us to death or exile us to Babylon. What did they do? They accused Jeremiah of lying and 
that God did not send Jeremiah. God, God never told Jeremiah not to enter Egypt. So Jeremiah is a liar. The truth teller is now the liar in this excuse. Not only that, but Jeremiah's right-hand man, Jeremiah's scribe, Jeremiah's scribe, Baruch, who you would say, we could say, the number two man, okay? Jeremiah and his associate, the number two man, they're saying, really, the number two man, he is the leader of this group, he is the leader of your gang, and you're listening to Baruch, you're not telling us the word of God, you're just listening to this other one who's on your side. And not only that, really, you want us to be killed. You don't have our good in mind. You don't really love us because if we stay here, you're going to have us put to death by the Babylonians. They're going to come in here and massacre all of us. That's what you really want, Jeremiah. You don't love us. You hate us and you want us killed. Another example, Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. In this chapter, we have a long explanation and then a parable, a parable at the, at the end of it. And so after the, ex, this explanation about what the people should do, how they should turn away from their sin, verse 49, the very last verse of the chapter, the, this is the reaction of the men. And notice in this case too, that these men according to the beginning of the chapter, were elders, certain elders, who came and actually asked Ezekiel, Ezekiel, tell us the word of the Lord. They, come, tell us the word of the Lord. So after he tells them the word of the Lord, verse 49, this is their reaction. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, is he not just speaking parables? Is he not just speaking parables? The last verse, verse 49. Ezekiel reports that the elders who consulted him to get the word of God, after he announced the word of God to them, their way of avoiding, uh, avoiding the obedience to the word of God was to say, oh, he's just speaking parables. He's not being serious with us. He is just waxing eloquent with illustrations and he's not being serious. That's what he's doing. He's just speaking parables and there's nothing here for us. Ezekiel doesn't have anything for us to obey. Well, let's continue. Let's continue. Another place. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. John 8 and verse 48. Jesus is addressing the Jews. Jesus is addressing the Jews. Which also reminds us, it doesn't matter who you are. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jesus or any one of us, the apostles, doesn't matter. This is going to be the same way people react in these various ways. John 8, 48. The Jews answered and said to him, to Jesus, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they shouldn't listen to Jesus Christ because he's not a Jew. He's actually a Samaritan. So there, we don't need to listen to a foreigner. That's one. And so it's not a matter of the content of the foreigner's message, but because he is a foreigner, don't listen to him. He's a Samaritan. And the other, he's a demon. 
He's got a demon. He's demon-possessed. So the truth speaker is actually a demoniac in their mind. Another one, Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 and verse 25. The Apostle Paul, he's a prisoner and he's speaking to Felix. Felix, who is in authority, a ruler, and he's appealing to Felix to listen to the truth and to release him. But he's also preaching the gospel. And in Acts 24, 25, in preaching the gospel, 24, 25, and as he was discussing, Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Why go away? Because you're scaring me. When you talk about the judgment to come, the day of judgment, and heaven and hell, that's making me afraid. You're scaring me, so don't talk to me about that. Speak to me pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Isaiah 30, 11. That's the way they want the preacher to be. These are just some examples in Scripture of how people dismiss the Word of God as presented and make excuses to sin. Let's continue back to chapter 19. Genesis 19 and 15. 19, 15. And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated, so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Now, when they urged him in the morning... Notice when the morning dawned, verse 15, and even in chapter 19 and verse 23, the sun had risen over the earth in 1927. Now, Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. So early in the morning, these things are happening. It's time to leave. It's time for the punishment to take place. The angels urged Lot to take his family to avert this punishment. But 16 says he hesitated. Now, he hesitated. Was he hesitating in unbelief and sin? Or was he hesitating for some other reason? And I think it's some other reason. I don't think he's hesitating in unbelief and sin because in 16, the compassion of the Lord is upon him. He's a righteous man. And he's not hesitating to the extent that his wife did in 17 and in 26 and therefore became a pillar of salt. So likely when he hesitated, he hesitated in shock or in horror, in some kind of of stupor that really this is about to happen and I'm about to experience it, be delivered from it myself by the grace of God and these, all these w- wicked people are going to be destroyed in this miraculous way? He was thinking about that, I believe. That's why he hesitated. But he was hesitating too long in thinking about that. So the angel seized him and his wife and daughter seized their hands and took them away because God's compassion was upon him. He sets them, they set them in a safe place outside the city. 
16, outside the city. But presumably it's not far enough for Lot's comfortable, uh, for, for Lot's comfort. So verse 17, and it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, escape for your life, do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley, escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your, your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small, that my life may be saved? And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that town was called Zoar. Outside, they are placed outside, but the angels tell them to go further, uh, farther away and don't stay anywhere in the valley because all these cities were in the valley. Presumably, there were five cities. The smallest of the five is called Zoar. Lot says, I don't have enough time, probably because he's an old, old man or old enough not to have the kind of energy and vigor to do so because we know he's old in verse 31. Our father is old. So he's old enough not to have enough uh, strength to flee quickly to go somewhere else. So he pleads with the angel, angels and angel, the angel of the Lord, to go to the small town the smallest of the five, and Zoar is its name. Zoar means small. He probably chose the small one in order for the bigger ones, the first four, where there were more people, to be destroyed. So please, Lord, have some mercy. And the, There are some wicked people in the small one, but they're not as populous as these other ones in this small town. Now, this town, earlier in 14.2, was called Bella. B-E-L-A, Bella, 14, verse 2, Genesis 14, 2. Now it has got another name called Zoar. In the valley, around the Dead Sea, currently around the Dead Sea, likely in the southern part of the Dead Sea, that region of the southern area of the current Dead Sea. So this request is granted to, to them to flee to, the, to this place. Now, I say um, four or five cities, and we'll see in a moment or in our next session more about that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.